Sir Philip Sidney, The Defense of Poesy, or An Apology for Poetry. Read by Michael Elliott. This is part two of three. But I am content not only to decipher him by his works, although works in commendation or dispraise must ever hold an high authority, but more narrowly will examine his parts. So that, as in a man, though altogether may carry a presence full of majesty and beauty, perchance in some one defectious piece we may find a blemish. Now in his parts, kinds, or species, as you list to term them, it is to be noted that some poesies have coupled together two or three kinds, as tragical and comical, whereupon is risen the tragicomical. Some in the like manner have mingled prose and verse, as Sanazaro and Boethius. Some have mingled matters heroical and pastoral. But that cometh all to one in this question, for if severed they be good, the conjunction cannot be hurtful. Therefore, perchance forgetting some and leaving some as needless to be remembered, it shall not be amiss in a word to cite the special kinds to see what faults may be found in the right use of them. Is it then the pastoral poem which is misliked? For perchance where the hedge is lowest they will soon sleep over. Is the poor pipe disdained, which sometime out of Melibius's mouth can show the misery of people under hard lords or ravening soldiers? And again, by Tityrus, what blessedness is derived to them that lie lowest from the goodness of them that sit highest, sometimes, under the pretty tales of wolves and sheep, can include the whole considerations of wrongdoing and patience, sometimes show that contention for trifles can get but a trifling victory, where perchance a man may seem, see that even Alexander and Darius, when they strave who should be cock of this world's dunghill, the benefit they got, was that the afterlivers may say, Hec memini et victum frustra contendere thirstin, ex illo corridon cordon est tempore nobis. Or is it the lamenting elegiac, which in a kind heart would move rather pity than blame, who bewails with the great philosopher Heraclitus the weakness of mankind and the wretchedness of the world, who surely is to be praised either for compassionate accompanying just causes of lamentation or for rightly painting out how weak be the passions of woefulness? Is it the bitter but wholesome iambic, which rubs the galled mind in making shame the trumpet of villainy with bold and open crying out against naughtiness? Or the satiric, who omne va fer vitium ridenti tangit amico, who sportingly never leaveth until he make a man laugh at folly, and at length ashamed to laugh at himself, which he cannot avoid, without avoiding the folly, who while circum precordia ludit give us, uh, giveth us to feel how many headaches a passionate life bringeth us to, how, when all is done, est eulibris animus si nos non deficit equus. No, perchance it is the comic whom naughty playmakers and stage-keepers have justly made odious. To the argument of abuse I will answer after. Only thus much now is to be said that the comedy is an imitation of the common errors of our life, which he representeth in the most ridiculous and scornful sort that may be, so as it is impossible that any beholder can be content to be such a one.
Now, as in geometry, the oblique must be known as well as the right, and in arithmetic, the odd as well as the even. So in the actions of our life, who seeth not the filthiness of evil, wanteth a great foil to perceive the beauty of virtue. Thus doth the comedy handle so in our private and domestical matters, as with hearing it we get, as it were, an experience which is to be looked for of a niggardly demea, of a crafty davos, of a flattering natho, of a vainglorious thrasso, and not only to know what effects are to be expected, but to know who be such by the signifying badge given them by the com comedian. And little reason hath any man to say that men learn evil by seeing it so set out, since, as I said before, there is no man living but by the force truth hath in nature, no sooner seeth these men play their parts, but wisheth them in pistrinum, although perchance the sack of his own faults lie so behind his back that he seeth not himself dance the same measure, whereto yet nothing can more open his eyes than to find his own actions contemptibly set forth. So that the right use of comedy will, I think, by nobody be blamed, and much less of the high and excellent tragedy that openeth the greatest wounds, and showeth forth the ulcers that are covered with tissue, that maketh kings fear to be tyrants, and tyrants manifest their tyrannical humors, that with stirring the effects and of admiration and commiseration teacheth the uncertainty of this world, and upon how weak foundations gilded roofs, gilden roofs are builded, that maketh us know qui sceptra savus duro imperio regit timet timentes, metus in octorum reddit. But how much it can move, Plutarch yieldeth a notable testimony of the abominable tyrant Alexander Phereus, from whose eyes a tragedy, well made and represented, drew abundance of tears, who without all pity had murdered infinite numbers and some of his own blood. So as he that was not ashamed to make matters for tragedies, yet could not resist the sweet violence of a tragedy. And if it wrought no further good in him, it was that he, in despite of himself, withdrew himself from hearkening to that which might mollify his hardened heart. But it is not the tragedy they do mislike, for it were too, it were too absurd to cast out so excellent a representation of whatsoever is most worthy to be learned. Is it the lyric that most displeaseth who with his tuned lyre and well-accorded voice giveth praise, the reward of virtue, to virtuous acts? Who gives moral precepts and natural problems? Who sometimes raiseth up his voice to the height of the heavens in singing the lauds of the immortal God? Certainly I must confess my own barbarousness. I never heard the old song of Percy and Douglas that I found not my heart moved more than with a trumpet. And yet it is sung but by some blind crowder with no rougher voice than rude style, which being so evil apparelled in the dust and cobwebs of that uncivil age, what would it work trimmed in the gorgeous eloquence of Pindar? In Hungary I have seen it at the seen at the manor at all feasts and other such meetings to have songs of their ancestors' valour, 
which that right soldier-like nation think the chiefest kindlers to, of brave courage. The incomparable Lacedaemonians did not only carry that kind of music ever with them to the field, but even at home, as such songs were made, so were they all content to be the singers of them, when the lusty men were to tell what they did, the old men what they had done, and the young men what they would do. And where a man may say that Pindar many times praiseth highly victories of small moment, matters rather of sport than virtue, as it may be answered, it was the fault of the poet and not of the poetry, so indeed the chief fault was in the time and custom of the Greeks who set those toys at so high a price that Philip of Macedon reckoned a horse race won at Olympus among his three fearful felicities. But as the inimitable Pindar often did, so is that kind most capable and most fit to awake the thoughts from the sleep of idleness to embrace honorable enterprises. There rests the heroical, whose very name, I think, should daunt all backbiters. For by what conceit can a tongue be directed to speak evil of that which draweth with it no less champions than Achilles, Cyrus, Aeneas, Turnus, Tydeus, and Rinaldo, who doth not only teach and move to a truth, but teacheth and moveth to the most high and excellent truth, who maketh magnanimity and justice shine throughout all misty fearfulness and foggy desires, who, if the saying of Plato and Tully be true, that who could see virtue would be wonderfully ravished with the love of her beauty, this man sets her out to make her more lovely in her holiday apparel to the eye of any that will deign not to disdain until they understand. But if anything be already said in the defense of sweet poetry, all concurreth to the maintaining the heroical, which is not only a kind, but the best and most accomplished kind of poetry. For as the image of each action stirreth and instructeth the mind, so the lofty image of such worthies most inflameth the mind with desire to be worthy, and informs with counsel how to be worthy. Only let Aeneas be worn in the tablet of your memory, how he governeth himself in the ruin of his country, in the preserving his old father, and carrying away his religious ceremonies, in obeying the God's commandment to leave Dido, though not only all passionate kindness, but even the human consideration of virtuous gratefulness would have craved other of him. How in storms, how in sports, how in war, how in peace, how a fugitive, how victorious, how besieged, how besieging, how to strangers, how to allies, how to enemies, how to his own. Lastly, how in his inward self, and how in his outward government. And I think in a mind not prejudiced with a prejudicating humor, he will be found in excellency fruitful. Yea, even as Horace saith, Melius Chrysippo et Crantore. But truly I imagine it falleth out with these poet whippers, as with some good women who are often sick, but in faith they cannot tell where. So the name of poetry is odious to them, but neither his cause nor effects, neither the sum that contains him nor the particularities descending from him, give any fast handle to their carping dispraise. 
Since then, poetry is, of all human learning, the most ancient and of most fatherly antiquity, as from whence other learnings have taken their beginnings. Since it is so universal that no learned nation doth, dis, doth despise it, nor no barbarous nation is without it. Since both Roman and Greek gave divine names unto it, the one of prophesying, the other of making, and that indeed that name of making is fit for him, considering that whereas other arts retain themselves within their subject, and receive, as it were, their being from it, the poet only bringeth his own stuff, and doth not learn a conceit out of a matter, but maketh matter for a conceit. Since neither his description nor his end containeth any evil, the thing described cannot be evil. Since his effects be so good as to teach goodness and to delight the learners. Since therein, namely in moral doctrine, the chief of all knowledges, he doth not only far pass the historian, but for instruction, instructing is well nigh comparable to the philosopher, and for moving leaves him behind him. Since the Holy Scripture, wherein there is no uncleanness, hath whole parts in it poetical, and that even our Saviour Christ vouchsafe to use the flowers of it. Since all his kinds are not only in their united forms, but in their severed dissections fully commendable, I think, and think I think rightly, the laurel crown appointed for triumphing captains doth worthily, of all other learnings, honour the poet's triumph. But, because we have ears as well as tongues, and that the lightest reasons that may be will seem to weigh greatly, if nothing be put in the counterbalance, let us hear, and as well as we can ponder, what objections may be made against this art, which may be worthy either of yielding or answering. First, truly I note, not only in these misomosoi poet-haters, but in all that kind of people who seek a praise by dispraising others, that they do prodigally spend a great many wandering words in quips and scoffs, carping and taunting at each thing which, by stirring the spleen, may stay the brain from a through beholding the worthiness of the subject. Those kinds of objections, as they are, full of very idle easiness, since there is nothing of so sacred a majesty, but that an itching tongue may rub itself upon it, so deserve they no other answer. But instead of laughing at the jest, to laugh at the jester. We know a playing a wit can praise the discretion of an ass, the comfortableness of being in debt, and the jolly commodity of being sick of the plague. So, of the contrary side, if we will turn to Ovid's verse, Ut latiat virtus proximitate mali, that good lie hid in nearness of the evil. Agrippa will be as merry in showing the vanity of science as Erasmus was in commending a folly. Neither shall any man or matter escape some touch of these smiling railers, but for Erasmus and Agrippa, they had another foundation than the superficial part would promise. Mary, these other pleasant fault-finders who will correct the verb before they understand the noun and confute others' knowledge before they confirm their own, I would have them only remember that scoffing cometh not out of wisdom, 
so as the best title in true English they get with their merriments is to be called good fools. For so have our grave forefathers ever termed that humorous kind of jesters. But that which giveth greatest scope to their scorning humors is rhyming and versing. It is already said, and as I think truly said, it is not rhyming and versing that maketh poesy. One may be a poet without versing, and a versifier without poetry. But yet presuppose it were inseparable, for indeed, as indeed it seemeth Scalinger judgeth, truly it were an inseparable commendation. For if oratio next to ratio, speech next to reason, be the greatest gift bestowed upon mortality, that cannot be praiseless, which doth most polish that blessing of speech, which considers each word not only as a man may say by his forcible quality, but by his best measured quantity, carrying even in themselves a harmony, without perchance number, measure, order, proportion be in our time grow odious. But lay aside the just praise it hath by being the only fit speech for music, music, I say, the most divine striker of the senses, thus much is undoubtedly true, that if reading be foolish without remembering, memory being the only treasure of knowledge, those words which, words which are fittest for memory are likewise most convenient for knowledge. Now, that verse far exceedeth prose in the knitting up of the memory, the reason is manifest. The words, besides their delight, which hath a great affinity to memory, being so set as one word cannot be lost, but the whole work fails, which accuseth itself, calleth the remembrance back to itself, and so most strongly confirmeth it. Besides, one word so, as it were, begetting another, as be it in rhyme or measured verse, by the former a man shall have a near guess to the follower. Lastly, even they that have taught the art of memory have shown nothing so apt for it as a certain room divided into many places well and thoroughly known. Now that hath the verse in effect perfectly, every word having his natural seat, which seat must needs make the words remembered. But what needeth more in a thing so known to all men? Who is it that ever was a scholar that do doth not carry away some verses of Virgil, Horace, or Cato, which in his youth he learned, and even to his old age serve him for hourly lessons? As percontatorum fugito nam garrulus item est, dum sibi quisque placet credula turba sumus. But the fitness it hath for memory is notably proved by all delivery of arts, wherein for the most part from grammar to logic, mathematic, physic, and the rest, the rules chiefly necessary to be borne away are compiled in verses. So that verse being in itself sweet and orderly and, and being best for memory, the only handle of knowledge, it must be in jest that any man can speak against it. For then... Go we to the most important imputations laid to the poor poets. For aught I can yet learn, they are these. First, that there being many other more fruitful knowledges, a man might better spend his time in them than in this. Secondly, 
that it is the mother of lies. Thirdly, that it is the nurse of abuse, infecting us with many pestilent desires, with a siren's sweetness drawing the minds to the serpent's tale of sinful fancy, and herein especially comedies give the largest field to ear, as Chaucer saith, how both in other nations and in ours before poets did soften us, we were full of courage, given to martial exercises, the pillars of manlike liberty, and not lulled asleep in shady idleness with poets' pastimes. And lastly, and chiefly, they cry out with an open mouth as if they outshot Robin Hood that Plato banished them out of his commonwealth. Truly, this is much, if there be much truth in it. First to the first, that a man might better spend his time is a reason indeed, but it doth, as they say, but petere principium. For if it be, as I affirm, that no learning is so good as that which teacheth and moveth to virtue, and that none can both teach and move thereto so much as poetry, then is the conclusion manifest that ink and paper cannot be to a more profitable purpose employed. And certainly, though a man should grant their first assumption, it should follow, methinks, very unwillingly, that good is not good because better is better. But I still and utterly deny that there is sprung out of earth a more fruitful knowledge. To the second, therefore, that they should be the principal liars, I answer paradoxically, but truly, I think truly, that of all writers under the sun, the poet is the least liar. And though he would, as a poet, can scarcely be a liar. The astronomer, with his cousin the geometrician, can hardly escape when they take upon them to measure the height of the stars. How often, think you, do the physicians lie when they aver things good for sickness, which afterwards send Charon a great number of souls drowned in a potion before they come to his ferry, and no less of the rest, which take upon them to affirm. Now, for the poet, he nothing affirms, and therefore never lieth. For as I take it, to lie is to affirm that to be true which is false. So as the other artists, and especially the historian, affirming many things, can in the cloudy knowledge of mankind hardly escape from many lies. But the poet, as I said before, never affirmeth. The poet never maketh any circles about your imagination to conjure you to believe for true what he writes. He citeth not authorities of other histories, but even for his entry calleth the sweet muses to inspire to him a good invention. In truth, not laboring to tell you what is or is not, but what should or should not be. And therefore, though he recount things not true, yet because he telleth them not for true, he lieth not. Without, we will say, that Nathan lied in his speech before alleged to David, which as a wicked man durst scarce say, so think I none so simple would say that Aesop lied in the table tales of his beasts. For who thinks that Aesop read it for actually true were well worthy to have his name chronicled among the beasts he writeth of. What child is there that coming to, a, coming to a play and seeing Thebes written in great letters upon an old door doth believe it is Thebes? If then a man can arrive at that child at child's age 
to know that the poet's persons and doings are but pictures what should be, and not stories what have been, they will never give the lie to things not affirmatively, but allegorically and figuratively written. And therefore, as in history looking for truth, they go away full fraught with falsehood, so in poesy looking but for fiction, they shall use the narration but as an imaginative ground plot of a profitable invention. But hereto is replied that the poets give names to men they write of, which argueth a conceit of an actual truth, and so not being true proves a falsehood. And doth the lawyer lie then, when under the names of John Astyle and John Anokes he put his, puts his case? But that is easily answered. Their naming of men is but to make their picture the more lively, and not to build any history. Painting men, they cannot leave men nameless. We see we cannot play at chess but that we must give names to our chessmen, and yet methinks he were a very partial champion of truth that would say we lied for giving a piece of wood the reverend title of a bishop. The poet nameth Cyrus or Aeneas no other way than to show what men of their fames, fortunes, and estates should do. Their third is how much it abuseth men's wit training it to wanton sinfulness and lustful love, for indeed that is the principal, if not the only abuse, I can hear alleged. They say that comedies rather teach than reprehend amorous conceits. They say the lyric is larded with passionate sonnets, the elegiac weeps the want of his mistress, and that even to the heroical Cupid hath ambitiously climbed. Alas, love, I would thou couldst as well defend thyself as thou canst offend others. I would those on whom thou dost attend could either put thee away or yield good reason why they keep thee. But grant love of beauty to be a beastly fault, although it be very hard since only man and no beast hath that gift to discern beauty. Grant that lovely name of love to deserve all hateful reproaches although even some of my masters, the philosophers, spent a good deal of their lamp oil in setting forth the excellency of it. Grant, I say, whatsoever they will have granted, that not only love but lust, but vanity, but, if they list, scurrility, possesseth many leaves of the poet's books. Yet think I, when this is granted, they will find their sentence may, with good manners, put the last words foremost." and not say that poetry abuseth man's wit, but that man's wit abuseth poetry. For I will not deny but that men's wit may make poesy which should be icastici, which some learned have defined figuring forth good things, to be fantastici, which doth contrariwise infect the fancy with unworthy objects as the painter that should give to the eye either some excellent perspective or some fine picture fit for building or fortification or containing in it some notable example as Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, Judith killing Holofernes, David fighting with Goliath may leave those and please an ill-pleased eye with wanton shows of better hidden matters. But what shall the abuse of a thing make the right use odious? Nay, truly, though I yield that poesy may not only be abused, 
but that being abused by the reason of his sweet, charming force, it can do no more hurt than any other army of words. Yet shall it be so far from concluding that the abuse should give reproach to the abused, that contrarywise it is a good reason that whatsoever being abused doth most harm, rightly being used, and upon the right use each thing conceiveth his title, doth most good. Do we not see the skill of physic, the best rampire to our often assaulted bodies, being abused, teach poison, the most violent destroyer? Doth not knowledge of law, whose end is to even and right all things, being abused, grow the crooked forester of horrible injuries? Doth not to go to the highest God's word abused, breed heresy, and his name abused become blasphemy? Truly, a needle cannot do much hurt, and as truly, with leave of ladies be it spoken, it cannot do much good. With a sword thou mayst kill thy father, and with a sword thou mayst defend thy prince and country. So that, as in their calling poets the fathers of lies, they say nothing. So in this their argument of abuse, they prove the commendation. They allege herewith that before poets began to be in price, our nation hath set their heart's delight upon action, and not upon imagination, rather doing things worthy to be written than writing things fit to be done. What that before time was, I can, I think, scarcely Sphinx can tell, since no memory is so ancient that hath the precedence of poetry. And certain it is that, in our plainest homeliness, yet never was the Albion nation without poetry. Marry, this argument, though it be leveled against poetry, yet it is indeed a chain-shot against all learning, or bookishness, as they commonly term it. Of such mind were certain Goths, of whom it is written that having, in the spoil of a famous city, taken a fair library, one hangman, belike fit to execute the fruits of their wits, who had murdered a great number of bodies, would have set fire on it. No, said another very gravely, take heed what you do, for while they are busy about these toys, we shall with more leisure conquer their countries. This indeed is the ordinary doctrine of ignorance, and many words sometimes I have heard spent in it, but because this reason is generally against all learning as well as poetry, or, or rather all learning but poetry, because it were too large a digression to handle, or at least too superfluous, since it is manifest that all government of action is to be gotten by knowledge, and knowledge best by gathering many knowledges, which is reading, I only with Horace to him that is of that opinion, Jubeo stultum esse libenter, for as poetry itself, it is the freest from this objection. For poetry is the companion of the camps. I dare undertake Orlando Furioso, or honest King Arthur, will never displease a soldier, but the quiddity of ends and prima materia will hardly agree with a corslet. And therefore, as I said in the beginning, even Turks and Tartars are delighted with poets. Homer, a Greek, flourished before Greece flourished. And if, to a slight conjecture, a conjecture may be opposed, truly it may seem that as by him their learned men took almost their first light of knowledge, 
so their active men receive their first motions of courage. Only Alexander's example may serve, who by Plutarch is accounted of such virtue that fortune was not his guide but his footstool, whose acts speak for him, though Plutarch did not, indeed the phoenix of warlike princes. This Alexander left his schoolmaster, living Aristotle, behind him, but took dead Homer with him. He put the philosopher Callisthenes to death for his seeming philosophical, indeed mutinous, stubbornness. But the chief thing he ever was heard to wish for was that Homer had been alive. He well found he received more bravery of mind by the pattern of Achilles than by hearing the definition of fortitude. And therefore, if Cato misliked Fulvius for carrying Aeneas with him to the field, it may be answered that if Cato misliked it, the noble Fulvius liked it, or else he had not done it. For it was not the excellent Cato Eutychensis, whose authority I would much more have reverenced, but it was the former, in truth a bitter punisher of faults, but else a man that had never well sacrificed to the graces. He misliked and cried out upon all Greek learning, and yet, being fourscore years old, began to learn it, belike fearing that Pluto understood not Latin. Indeed, the Roman laws allowed no person to be carried to the wars, but that he was in the soldier's role, and therefore, though Cato misliked his unmustered person, he misliked not his work. And if he had, Scipio Nasica, judged by common consent the best Roman, loved him. Both the other Scipio brothers, who had by their virtues no less surnames than of Asia and Africa, so loved him that they caused his body to be buried in their sepulchre. So as Cato's authority being but against his person, and that answered with so far greater than himself, is herein of no validity. But now indeed my burden is great. Now Plato's name is laid upon me, whom I must confess of all philosophers I have ever esteemed most worthy of reverence, and with great reason since of all philosophers he is the most poetical. Yet if he will defile the fountain out of which his flowing streams have proceeded, let us boldly examine with what reasons he did it. First, truly a man might maliciously object that Plato, being a philosopher, was a natural enemy of poets. For indeed, after the philosophers had picked out of the sweet mysteries of poetry the right discerning true points of knowledge, they forthwith putting it in method and making a school art of that which the poets did only teach by a divine delightfulness, beginning to spurn at their guides like ungrateful apprentices, were not content to set up shops for themselves, but sought by all means to discredit their masters, which by the force of delight being barred them, the less they could overthrow them, the more they hated them. For indeed, they found for Homer seven cities strave who should have him for their citizen, where many cities banished philosophers as not fit members to live among them. For only repeating certain of Euripides' verses, many Athenians had their lives saved of the Syracusans, when the Athenians themselves thought many philosophers unworthy to live. Certain poets, as Simonides and Pindar, had so prevailed with Hiero I that of a tyrant they made him a just king, 
where Plato could do so little with Dionysus that he himself, of a philosopher, was made a slave. But who should do thus, I confess, should requite the objections made against poets with like cavillation against philosophers, as likewise one should do that, should bid one read Phaedrus or Symposium in Plato, or the Discourse of Love in Plutarch, and see whether any poet do authorize abominable filthiness as they do. Again, a man might ask out of what commonwealth Plato did banish them, in sooth thence where he himself alloweth community of women. So as belike this banishment grew not for effeminate wantonness, since little should poetical sonnets be hurtful when a man might have what woman he listed, but I honor philosophical instructions and bless the wits which bred them, so as they be not abused, which is likewise stretched to poetry. St. Paul himself, who yet for the credit of poets allegeth twice two poets, and one of them by the name of a prophet, setteth a watchword upon philosophy, indeed upon the abuse. So doth Plato upon the abuse, not upon poetry. Plato found fault that the poets of his time filled the world with wrong opinions of the gods, making light tales of that unspotted essence, and therefore would not have the youth depraved with such opinions. Herein may much be said, let this suffice. The poets did not induce such opinions, but did imitate those opinions already induced. For all the Greek stories can well testify that the very religion of that time stood upon many and many-fashioned gods, not taught so by the poets, but followed according to their nature of imitation. Who list may read in Plutarch the discourses of Isis and Osiris, of the cause why oracles ceased, of the divine providence, and see whether the theology of that nation stood not upon such dreams which the poets indeed superstitiously observed, and truly, since they had not the light of Christ, did much better in it than the philosophers, who, shaking off superstition, brought in atheism. Plato, therefore, whose authority I had much rather justly construe than unjustly resist, meant not in general of poets. In those words of which Julius Scalinger saith, Qua authoritate barbari quidem atque hispidi abuti velent at poetis e republica exigendos, but only meant to drive out those wrong opinions of the deity, whereof now, without further law, Christianity hath taken away all the hurtful belief, perchance, as he thought, nourished by the then esteemed poets. And a man need go no further than to Plato himself to know his meaning, who in his dialogue called Ion giveth high and rightly divine commendation to poetry. So, as Plato, banishing the abuse, not the thing, not banishing it, but giving due honor unto it, shall be our patron and not our adversary, for indeed, I had much rather, since truly I may do it, show their mistaking of Plato, under whose lion skin, skin they would make an ass-like bray against poesy, than go about to overthrow his authority, whom the wiser a man is, the more just cause he shall find to have in admiration, especially since he attributeth unto poesy 
more than myself do, namely, to be a very inspiring of a divine force, far above man's wit, as in the aforenamed dialogue is apparent. Of the other side, who would show the honors of being by the best sorts of judgments granted them, a whole sea of examples would present themselves. Alexanders, Caesars, Scipios, all favorers of poets. Laelius, called the Roman Socrates, himself a poet, so as part of Hioton Timor Ruminos in Terence was supposed to be made by him, and even the Greek Socrates, whom Apollo confirmed to be the only wise man, is said to have spent part of his old time in putting Aesop's fables into verses. And therefore full evil should it become his scholar Plato to put such words in his master's mouth against poets. But what need more? Aristotle writes the art of poesy, and why, if it should not be written? Plutarch teacheth the use to be gathered of them, and how, if they should not be read? And who reads Plutarch's either history or philosophy shall find he trimmeth both their garments with guards of poesy. But I list not to defend poesy with the help of her underling historiography. Let it suffice that it is a fit soil for praise to dwell upon. And what dispraise may set upon it is either easily overcome or transformed into just commendation. So that since the excellencies of it may be so easily and so justly confirmed, and the low creeping objections so soon trodden down, it not being an art of lies but of true doctrine, not of effeminateness but of noble st notable stirring of courage, not of abusing man's wit but of strengthening man's wit, not banished but honored by Plato, let us rather plant more laurels for to engarland our poets' heads, which honor of being laureate as besides them only triumphant captains wear, is a sufficient authority to show the price they ought to be had in, than suffer the ill-favoring breath of such wrong speakers once to blow upon the clear springs of poesy. You've been listening to Open Book Season 3, which consists entirely of my readings of long poems or, in these episodes, treatises on poetry. If you like what you hear, share it with a friend or with 400 friends on social media. You can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and send me, Michael Elliott, comments and suggestions via email. U-L-L-Y-O-T at ucalgary.ca Thanks for listening.